Hello everyone, you are listening to another episode of the Modern Data Show and today we have Mehdi Kara Biben joining us from the beautiful city of Paris. Mehdi is a senior data engineer at Zendesk who enjoy working with data and building scalable data platforms. Zendesk is a customer service software that was founded in Copenhagen, uh, Denmark in 2007 and have since grown to over 5400 employees serving 160,000 paid customer accounts in 160 countries powering billions of conversations with hundreds of millions of customers over telephony, chat and many more channels. At Zendesk, Mehdi is responsible for building data products and enhancing the existing data stack to help internal teams access product data at scale and he loves to contribute to open source. Uh, recently, Mehdi also authored a live project series on building end-to-end -end batch data pipelines with Spark uh, with Manning Publications. Uh, Mehdi started his career at Democracy International helping Tunisian ministries work with electoral data and then join an ad tech firm numberly to revamp the data architecture of one of their core products followed by a stint at Credit Agricole and Factset. Welcome Mahdi, we are super happy to have you on our podcast and thank you for joining us today. Thank you Ayush, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm very happy about being on the podcast and thanks again for the invite and I'm looking forward to talk about data and about data stacks. Amazing, amazing. So before jumping into anything specific, Mehdi, let's first start with your work with Democracy International. How did that even happen? Yeah, I mean, it was around six years ago. I was still a student. And so basically, Democracy International is an American NGO who mainly work with governments on trying to um, democratize access to data. So, you know, for um, data that comes from ministries and from uh, official sources, usually it's not very easy to, to actually understand and comprehend for any citizen. And so Democracy International basically tries to democratize access to that. They are building interactive, interactive charts and dashboards that are easily accessible and trying to build uh, UIs for open data platforms that allow people to easily understand uh, those type of data sets. Uh, so yeah, they, they reached out when I was still a student because I already started being active in some open source projects and they reached out saying that, hey, we, we have this project with Tunisian government to actually try to build pl platforms and UIs for um, different open data sets. And that was mainly what I worked on, trying to just revamp that type of data and trying to think of how can any citizen access that data in a very efficient manner and a very interactive and intuitive manner to get a full picture of data, whether it's about your municipality, whether about how the government is doing, about budgets and so on. Um, so it was a lot of fun. Um, and it was, yeah, my my first dive into data and to, uh, trying to explore different data sets, data quality issues and so on. And it was quite interesting, yeah. Awesome, awesome. And, you know, I know we, uh, we talked about this when we met in person last month, but, you know, tell us a little bit about your journey from Tunisia to now in Paris. Yeah, it was. Um, I think it was quite, um, quite interesting for me. Since I started working with Democracy International, it was clear that I, I want to work in data. Like I enjoyed work so much. I enjoyed working with the data. Like whether it's um, modifying it, trying to build dashboards, and so on. It was um, really interesting work for me. And so for my end of studies internship, I, I wanted to work with uh, as much data as possible and try to, to maybe work. At other, on other parts of the stack, whether it's the data warehouse, whether it's building data lakes, whether just trying to explore that whole ecosystem. And an opportunity with Numberly was, was available. So Numberly is basically um, an ad tech company based in Paris. Uh, they work on basically 
most of the marketing campaigns that are uh, done here in France, whether it's via phone SMS or emails or even uh, publications or ads on, on websites. And for that, they use a lot of cookies data and they use a lot of data from external sources. Uh, they have a large Hadoop cluster and the project was very interesting. It was about migrating from uh, existing pipelines that were done with Hive into Spark and Airflow. So it was a lot of work to be done and also a lot of optimization and going into very interesting parts of how Spark actually executes queries and so on. Um, so it was a very interesting project. Uh, it was the move that led me to come to Paris. And since then, I'm, I'm here. I, I remained in Paris um, and I remained working with data. Amazing. And, you know, let's, let's go, let's talk a little bit about Zendesk now. So, uh, you know, help us understand, uh, how is the data organization at Zendesk structured and how does data work really happens at Zendesk? Yeah. So I think it's, I'd say it's the typical path of any tech oriented company that grew really quickly. So you start from point one, then you have that period of very, very quick growth in which for acquisitions, for new organizations, new, new ways of working of data and so on. And so the whole tech stack grows in different directions very fast and it's just keeping track of it will be a very hard task. Um, and it's the same for data. Zendesk is by nature a very data-oriented company and it's very data-driven. All the decisions, actually I was surprised when I joined how data-driven the company is. Every opportunity to actually leverage data and decision making is is taken. There's no no way of just having data stale or having data available and not, not leveraging it. Um, so with that, there are eventually many data teams, but some of them are created organically, some via acquisitions and so on. Uh, the three main teams within Zendesk are first is Zendesk Explore, which is basically a Zendesk product that allows Zendesk customers to um, have analytics and reports on how their teams are using Zendesk and how many tickets are created and so on. Uh, so behind that, there's a dedicated data engineering team that works on offering those capabilities and data apps to uh, the Zendesk customers. Then there's Foundation, which is the um, engineering team that works on foundational data platform, which is mainly for product data, uh, how product teams actually publish their data, how the data is stored, how it's processed, and then how, how it's made available to internal teams uh, within an internal platform. Uh, and the last team, which is the team I'm part of, which is EDA, uh, Enterprise Data and Analytics, we basically work on building the created data sets and working on the data warehouse uh, of Zendesk to actually uh, work with the stake internal stakeholders to offer them uh, created data sets and access to data, whether it's for business purposes or even for product analytics and so on. So we have many data domains that we own. So for example, take finance data, how, how is the company doing financially? Uh, you can take product data, how are users actually using the features that we release? How are users actually interacting with different features of Zendesk products that would help product teams better organize their roadmap and better think about the features that they're releasing? Um, so yeah, in total, currently we're working on six data domains now within EDA, but we're a very small part of big picture when it comes to data events at desk. Um, that's Explore, Foundation, and then EDA. I think so we saw a similar uh, org structure when we spoke with Canva. You know, they have a very similar uh, federated org structure, especially when it comes to data, you know, the data team. So that, that's super cool to hear. So uh, taking a little bit, uh, you know, further, so, uh, help us understand how does the Zendesk stacks look like? You know, what kind of tools and platform do you guys use internally? 
Yeah, I think it's it's honestly when I joined, I was very surprised to this because again, it's many data orgs and many people within the company thinking about data and thinking about how to, to actually build a platform and make it as accessible as possible. And so it um, it goes in many different directions. But as you said, the main component is the central foundation data platform, uh, which is basically on AWS, on S3. Um, so we have a main, it's two components. One is the data lake and the other is the data hub. The data lake is basically data sets on S3 that are managed with Apache Hoodie and then that are offered to, to consumption with Athena. So you can query it uh, via Athena and the tables are on the Google catalog. So the typical AWS stack for, for managing the data lake. Uh, and that data comes in from basically change data capture from the product databases. So they go to, through, um, through the bin logs and from the bin logs, you extract all the changes and then that's pushed the data lake via Kafka. So it's, let's say it's yeah a typical CDC process in which the advantage of using Hoodie is that we can actually manage the data at the row level. So for GDPR, for example, and other regulatory reasons, uh, Hoodie offers you the capability to actually ensure that you can delete, for example, one specific row without any um, large repercussions to that. And you can actually modify the row level information in a very efficient manner. And also use lake formation to actually manage uh, access to that data and row level access and also column level access uh, for security and also for um, data governance. And on the second part of it, so Data Hub is, um, so it's part of an initiative called Platform Data Architecture. And the idea here is that product teams publish the data on their own. So they, it's product teams who publish events via Kafka and then the events get consumed via Flink and then they get pushed to S3 when, again, it's with Apache Hoodie and you have tables that are managed by Apache Hoodie. And this is the direction that the company is going to. So the idea is to get product teams publish their own data. And so here it's easier to establish data contracts, to define standards, how do you actually publish that data, what are the standards that every data assets that's published on PDA should meet. So it's a big portion of the data mesh principles of how product teams should actually own their data and should publish the data that they're generating via their applications in a very standardized manner. Um, and that's the path in which the company is, um, is going. There is a very interesting blog that has been published very recently on the AWS tech blog uh, by the head of foundation engineering that goes into the details of this platform, the initiative, how it's actually implemented on AWS. Uh, it's very interesting. So for, for a very deep dive into it, I totally recommend that blog. And it goes into the details of how this came together and how actually the platform is doing now. Sure, we will post the link of the, the blog along with the episode notes. So thank, thank you so much for that. Uh, so Mehdi, tell us a little bit about the, you know, uh, you talked a bit of it in a sense that you have the change data capture process that kind of publishes those uh, key product events uh, back into your data lake and eventually Hoodie and then Athena. Uh, are you, uh, do you have your own custom built CDC uh, infrastructure or using something like Debezium? Yeah, for that, we're using the AWS product. It's called DMS, if I'm not mistaken. And that product basically, so Zendesk data is on around 2000 um, Aurora databases, Aurora MySQL databases. And to get the CDC from all those databases, we're using the AWS product DMS, which basically works on capturing all those changes and pushing them into the um, dedicated um, S3 buckets. On, on top of which for the, um, they're managed by Hoodie and on top of which you can access the data via Athena. 
so that's the part of the process on the foundation side, and that's how the um, product data gets into the data lake. And all of that is before the team I'm part of, EDA, even starts operating on the data. So our team, EDA, we actually consume the data from the data lake, and then we get it into our own data warehouse, which is on BigQuery, uh, and that's when we add other sources to it. So from what we get from AWS is mainly product data, but then you can imagine that you want to actually um, add other sources to that. So the data you get from your CRM, the data that you get from your billing system, the data that you get from even your HR system. So you have a very number of systems that you actually want to add uh, data from to that product data. And that happens on BigQuery or the data warehouse. And we move data from AWS into BigQuery again using Kafka. So the company as a whole is very, um, is very focused on event-driven architecture. So it's very rarely that you see data moving within Zendesk without having Kafka in between or without relying on events. Um, yeah. So you you talked about you know uh, consuming the, uh, the the product data using the CDC, and you you just talked about you know there are other data sources as well. So have you built your own custom connectors to be able to pull data from these sources, or are you using some you know off the shelf you know tools like Airbyte or Fivetrans? Yeah, it's mostly custom connectors because again, I think with the, with the company being very data driven, we had to think about those needs and those initiatives before they were like let's say democratized and all companies try to implement them and so when you start thinking about it in 2017 for example you have very very few options that you can pick from and most of those options at the time they didn't have all the functionalities you were looking for so if you wanted to do that six or seven years ago you had to build a lot of stuff on your own and that was the case for Zendesk a lot of it is internal components that run on Kubernetes that basically do a lot of um, a lot of the stuff that's currently today can be done with Airbyte or Fivetran. Uh, but for us, we had to, to start from scratch for most of it. So it's mostly internal components. Amazing. And, and what kind of data volumes are we talking about? I would assume like given the huge scale of Zendesk, it would be huge. So any any sense in terms of how, what are the data volumes you're talking about? Yeah, it's, it's better, but it's like, as you said, in, in the intro, like Zendesk as a company, we have around, I think, more than 100,000 customers. And you can imagine the number of tickets that are being created on a daily basis. So we have billions of tickets. Uh, usually users have a lot of complaints with, with the companies that they work with. So there are a lot of support tickets that get created. Um, and yeah, it's, it's billions and billions of tickets. Um, and the total uh, amount of data, it's in the petabytes. And again, uh, we're talking about data. So all the product data that gets into the data lake, uh, a portion of that is what comes into the data warehouse. And then on the data warehouse, we get yet more sources. But just the product data generated by Zendesk products is in the database. Got it. Got it. And one of the key things that we keep hearing, you know, in the data space and which is kind of one of the pitches for most of these ETL companies is that these connectors are hard to maintain, you know, they break and, you know, uh, there are change in API specifications. There are tons of things that keeps on happening. And how often do you face this challenge? Like, you know, you, you, you're, you're kind of managing this internally. So how often do you face these challenges where you would see some connector broke and you have, you know, those pipelines broken? How often that happens there in Zendesk and what do you do to solve that? Yeah, it does. It does happen quite often because as you said, 
Um, the thing is when, when you build, like when you work on data integration, you may start with maybe five data sources, but in one year, those five data sources will become 20. So you can't actually build something without thinking about making it flexible, making it resilient, because things will break, things will, things will change, and also you will add new types of data assets into it. Um, so yeah, we, we do encounter those problems quite frequently. The idea is to um, ensure that you have locking, that you have monitoring, that if something breaks, you are aware of it immediately, and you can go and immediately fix the issue and ensure that uh, whether it's due to an API change, sometimes the API would be down for, for a period of time because that um, data source, let's say they're doing maintenance or they may be updating something, so the API would be down. Um, and it's, it's very hard to ensure communication on it and to ensure that you get the information when you need it, when there's that type of change. And so the, um, let's say, the brute force way of ensuring that at least when something goes down, you're aware of it, is to just ensure that you're logging everything, you have monitoring and alerting. So whenever something breaks, we have immediately an alert on Slack that, hey, this, this task failed, and you can immediately go and see why. Uh, tell us a little bit about how do you how have you built observability around these processes? So we're seeing a you know we're seeing a two waves of tools coming in the data observability space. One is around data at rest, which is where once you have your data in the data warehouse, uh, you have set of tools that helps you you know maintain the sanctity of that data or check the sanctity of data. You have tools like Monte Carlo data. Anomalo, there are tons of tools out there. And then there is also a set of tools that are for more focused around observing data at motion. That means, you know, motion, observing the data pipelines. Uh, are you guys any such tools around that? Or is that something that is, you know, kind of developed in-house? Yeah, so it's mostly for the data quality itself. We, so we recently in the past year worked a lot on that at especially on the data at rest, um, data monitoring and observability on top of that. Um, some of it is in-house processes because again, very very large parts of the stack are built in-house. So we use Airflow as our um, orchestration engine, but a lot of the components and even how we use Airflow is very customized to our own platform. Uh, so we have also customization on data quality. So as soon as we receive the data, and as soon as it's just into the raw layer, we perform data quality tests on it to ensure that the data is actually meeting the standards that we defined. And only then you move it to the next step of, of, the, um, of the deck or of your workflow. Um, and then in terms of checking data quality and observability when the data is still in, in the streaming process or still in movement, that's something that we're still working on, at least the parts that I'm aware of. Um, and currently, we're mostly monitoring uh, breaking changes. And if something breaks, we're aware of it immediately. But then you can't catch all potential issues. Uh, so it's it's a very big effort to be able to catch all potential issues as soon as they happen. So I think the bare minimum is that if something breaks, you're aware of it immediately. I understood. And uh, Mati, you talked about you know you know uh, the ETL process at Zendesk and. Uh, now, keeping aside Zendesk, like from uh, you know understanding from you as a as a as a senior data engineer, uh, what are your thoughts around open source versus commercial solutions for ETL? Right, there's a there's a new wave of you know open source ETL platforms coming up, and the the basic pitch is you know we 
through democratizing the connectors we build that long tail of connectors that you know is not kind of affordable to be get maintained by a singular uh, you know commercial vendor so what are your thoughts around that and how should any company how should anyone earlier in their journey go about selecting uh, commercial versus an on-prem or on-prem or open source solution like probably airbyte or meltano yeah, I mean, that's the, the eternal debate of fault versus buy. I think it's it's a very delicate equation. You can't you can't have an absolute right answer. It will always depend on your use case. You just have to ensure that yeah, open source is free, but you also have an engineer course to actually implement what's what's open source. You have to not just implement it and deploy it, you have to maintain it and you have to make sure that you actually can afford the resources and the time to actually maintain that product. And on the other hand, you have the financial requirement to actually buy something from a vendor, which will allow you to put your engineering resources into something else. So it's a very delicate equation, which changes very, very easily, like the fine line in, in, in between from this to this. Um, it has a lot of factors that are defining it. I think in, in general, for companies that are getting started, or if you just want to get started with it, uh, if you have very limited data engineering resources within the team, might as well dedicate those resources to actually producing value from the data, which is ensuring that you can actually build data products, you can deliver data assets, whether it's data apps or just curated data sets, or even allow your business users to access the data in a very efficient manner. And so that means that the more abstracted parts of the stack, where you're actually getting the data from different sources and so on, you can start by just getting a vendor to deliver that capability for you and you get your team to work on the more business specific areas so for example you have a lot of business logic and data transformation you have a lot of business logic in how you deliver the data and that's where you need people who are actually aware of all the constraints of, of your own team but moving data from place a to place b usually it's not that uh, specific to your use case so if there's a vendor that offers all the connectors you need might as well start with that, and eventually you can move to something that you build in-house or an open-source project if you actually can afford those resources. Um, but I think, yeah, I think just going with an open-source project or a vendor based on the number of connectors isn't always a good metric because you wouldn't need like 150 connectors getting started because as a small company, you would need maybe 10 basic connectors that most tools would offer to you. Uh, and if you have maybe one or two niche tools that you're using, the cost of actually adding connectors for, for those tools, no matter which tool you're using, is very is very low compared to, to the effort that you would need to actually implement the platform as a, as a whole. So I think that's the wrong metric to look at, especially if you're just getting started. I think you need to just list what you can afford to spend in, in engineering time and say, can I actually dedicate this time to just building capability that won't deliver immediate value to my customers? Or should I just work with vendor, at least get started with that? And then eventually, maybe on the midterm, try to think about what would be the most efficient solution for this on, on the long term for me. So I, I saw in one of the articles that you mentioned that data technologies are going through a third wave. Tell us more. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for most data engineers who are currently working on, on the current data stack, I think most of us started with the Hadoop era and the Hadoop ecosystem and all of that, which when that started, 
it was the second wave of, let's say, data technologies because people started working with data more than 20 years ago. So you have tools that, so the notion of a data warehouse and the notion of ETL and so on are have been here for decades. And so initially it was a lot of heavy processing, a lot of slow processing to actually get the data into a consumable state. And it had very certain limitations like the size of the data, the size of the resources you can spend because your the data warehouse is something that lives within your, your own infrastructure and you have to maintain it. You have to buy, if you want more data, you want to need, you need to buy, buy new disks and so on. And then with Hadoop, it was the second wave, the notion of you can actually do this at scale. You no longer have a limitation of one data warehouse or one, one instance for your data warehouse. So you can have an infinite number or very large number of just disposable hardware on which you can actually run data processing. You can store your data and do it at scale. So that was a very important point for, for a lot of companies to actually say, hey, all of this data that I can actually leverage is something interesting. It's a big asset for me. And so a lot of companies started betting on Hadoop on just trying to build that whole data platform internally. Hadoop offered solutions to store the data at scale, processing the data at scale of Spark, but it was still very, very complex. It was still uh, a long process to get TapHunt running. And once you do, you have new questions of how do you actually ensure data quality at scale? How do you actually ensure that the data that you have, you're proposing at scale is accessible, is democratized, is easily created by different types of users. Some of them want to use notebooks, some of them want to create the data in an interactive manner. Some of them want dashboards on top of your data lake. How do you actually offer that? And then the third wave with the modern data stack is going even further. And instead of just focusing on those core capabilities that are now available, it's now tackling those small features. It's like, Okay, you don't need to worry about data quality. You have now a tool that will do data quality for you. You don't need to worry about making the data that you have on your distributed platform accessible. You have data catalog that will do that for you. You don't need to worry about, for example, ensuring that you capture metadata. You have a tool that will get metadata for you and make it accessible. So it's now um, each, each phase built on top of a previous one. And with a modern data stack, it's basically just building on top of what we started with with the Hadoop Air and just making that hard, the, the hard bits and yeah, the stuff that was complex to implement with Hadoop much easier because now it's managed services that you can basically get out of the box and you just need to plug your data into it. And you know, one other thing that we have seen that has happened along with the evolution of the modern data stack is the shift from ETL to actually ELT, which is where you're pushing all the data into a data warehouse uh, in, a, in a data lake without actually transforming it. And it it's just sits there until someone needs that data. And practically that data is of no use till then. And, you know, we are all sold by these, you know, cloud data warehouses like Snowflake where, you know, the storage is cheap, the computation is expensive. So you only pay for compute. So what impact do you think this have on the overall modeling and governance about data? Because now you don't think about, you know, you know, creating data and putting into a data lake. You just worry about, you know, making it consumable when you are going towards the, the compute part of it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's, it's a double-edged sword because it makes things too easy. And when the things get too easy, it's very, um, it's very easy also to just go into an abundance of creating tables, of using data in any way possible because you can. And eventually, you, if you, 
leave your teams to do that. Eventually you'll find what's now it's called a data swamp. Eventually that's where you land because it's very easy to transform data to build tables on top of it. And so I think we go back to point of standards and that you actually need to define standards, even if you can theoretically like denormalize all your data and build any table possible, uh, you still need to define standards, not only, so even if there are no longer compute constraints or storage constraints, even for users, uh, eventually realize that it's much more efficient and it's much easier for people to understand how the data is actually structured and what's on the data warehouse if you apply standards. So I personally don't think that there is one golden standard. You can go with a Kimball approach. You can even go with the approach of denormalized tables. You just need to standardize it. You just need to say, this is how we model data. This is how we're gonna go forward with defining our data assets. This is how we actually want the data to be visible to users. This is how our consumption layer on, on data warehouse is gonna look like. And you need to respect those standards. And I think with that, it will be much more efficient. First, anyone in the company will be able to understand, no matter what data model they're looking at, they'll understand the current process, how this data is being built, and okay, how can I consume this data? And it'll be much easier for you to scale. Otherwise, if, if you just scale using the compute and storage capabilities because you can, eventually you'll, you, you'll have the data. It will be just very complex for you to consume it in an efficient manner. And anyone who will look at the data warehouse, they, they will be lost. They won't understand, okay, should I use this table or this table? And how is this being created? Or should I build something else? Sometimes they'll go and build something else and it will be just um, more costs for you eventually and also more complexity to use the data. That's an amazing thought. That's an amazing thought, Marie. So we are moving towards the end of our episode and, uh, you know, we would like to wrap up the episode with a set of, you know, quick rapid fire questions, you know, the questions that, you know, you don't have to think much about it. So let me start with the first question. Uh, tell me one tool that you feel you just can't live without. Tell me one tool in this whole data value chain, which you feel, damn, you know, life would have been much different had it not been that tool. I mean, if you asked me the question maybe five years ago, I would have said Spark because Spark was a complete game changer. Like, I, as I said, I worked on moving data from data process from Hive to Spark, and Spark makes life much easier. But right now, I'd say DBT. Like, especially for, yeah, uh, when you look at how SQL based pipelines were like three years ago and how are things now with DBT, it's, it's count, like the quality of life upgrades you get are, are massive. Uh, the next question is, uh, we are seeing a massive explosion of tools that are coming out of the modern data stack ecosystem, right? Where we have a lot of tools that are solving very small niche problems in that entire data value chain. What do you think is the future? What do you think that is the future having is having like a separate tool for every single problem that you have in a value chain or you expect consolidation? Yeah, I honestly think there'll be a lot of consolidation because currently like, there's a lot of overlap on any aspect of a modern data stack. Uh, so you have your data quality tool that has dashboard to show you like how the data is doing, but then you can put same capability on a data catalog. Um, and even like how you discuss about data, you have every tool will offer you those basic capabilities. And since it's basically a whole company that's tackling a small feature, they're obliged to just expand. And with each one expanding out of that core feature into other adjoint features, eventually there's just big overlap and very solid chances, chances for cons uh, consolidation because it, it doesn't make sense for data teams to have like 20 contracts or work 20 vendors. Eventually, 
you'd want to minimize that. And I think that um, SaaS companies will will figure that out eventually and will figure that consolidation is the only way forward. Perfect. And then the next question is, uh, what's your go-to place for learning new stuff about data? Any particular blogs or, you know, newsletters that you follow and that you would like to share with the audience? Sure. I mean, I think the first asset is the newsletter of my worker at Zendesk, Ananth, um, Data Engineering Weekly. Uh, I think it's a very... I think it's a great resource and I think the effort he puts every week in curating those articles are really just massive. Like I, I personally try to write at maybe one article per month and I, I sometimes I struggle with that. And you see that he reads all those articles every week and publishes stuff. So I think it's it's a very high quality asset. Um, and then honestly, I, I try to follow discussions on data Twitter. Uh, usually that's where you get intrigued by different topics and bits of uh, discussion. I think that Twitter offers a very digestible way of um, getting information. So you read a few tweets, you start thinking about something, and then you go and do a deep dive into it. You read articles, you read blog posts, and so on. So that's usually the workflow for me. Any cool accounts that we should follow? Yeah, honestly, there are quite a few. Uh, I follow, for example, Bar Moses, CEO of um, Monte Carlo. Uh, and there are also um, so there's from High Touch, I Pedram, who's also very active and who who is the person who started most of the interesting debates. Um, and then you start from there. And what I sometimes do is that when I find someone who's publishing interesting stuff on the stack, I just look at who are they following and I start following those people. Amazing. Then uh, wrapping off with a last question. So tell us one thing that you love about your job and tell us one thing that you hate about your job. As um, as data engineer in general? Yes, as a data engineer as that next. I mean, one thing that I love is seeing the, the impact of, of the things we build. Uh, and this is especially true, for example, within a company like Zendesk. You actually see that you are impacting decision-making by the data assets that you're working on and the data pipelines that you're building, which is honestly, um, it's, I think there are very few jobs within tech that you see that immediate impact at that scale. Um, so I think it's, it's quite rewarding and it's a very nice feeling. The thing that I hate, I think it, it's something that the whole community is working on, but as a data team, you, have, you work with a lot of external stakeholders and you have a lot of potential things that can go wrong because the data platform depends on many things that are out of your control. Uh, especially if you like, if you look at more old school approach where you have a data platform team that's working on the data and you have data producers that don't care about what they're creating. Uh, it's very frustrating to have to fix something that you didn't actually create. So it's, it's an issue that didn't start from, from your end, but yet you have to fix it and you have to just worry about it. And the team that actually created the data doesn't even care about it. Uh, thank you, Mahdi, so much for taking our time for this episode. I think so. we had an amazing conversation and I hope the audience would enjoy our conversation as much as we had while even uh, doing the conversation. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. It was, um, it was a lot of fun and it was great to, to discuss about all these data topics. Yeah, thank you again for having me and looking forward to chatting again. Thank you so much.